All right, Chris, are you ready to do the pledge? Yes, sir. All right, here we go. Odenkirk is my, is my spirit, spirit animal. animal. He, he is, is my guide. guide. The path, path to enlightenment leads through Odenkirk. In a, In a fallen world, it takes a slimy, fast-talking lawyer to teach us all to love. This, this is my pledge to watch and recap Better, Better Call Saul. Say it with me. Saul. Hey, John. Hey, Chris. How's it going? Pretty good. How about yourself? Good, good, good. I'm, I'm all right. So how about that bonus episode we just had, huh? Yeah, don't skip that. Go back and listen to that if you skip that, because it was good. And also, for any uh, OCD people, it's very exciting because it uh, it made our, our episode numbers line up with the episode numbers of, uh, of Better Call Saul. So now... We're about to have episode seven of our show, which uh, corresponds with episode seven of Better Call Saul, uh, entitled Bingo. Oh, that just feels so right, Chris. Yes. The world is 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 okay. If doing this is right, I don't want to be wrong. Um, yeah, that, that's logical. That kind of follows, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it makes sense. So this is a cool episode that uh, uh, it puts the Kettleman's storyline to bed in a very fun way. And uh, it gives us some development of Chuck and, and sort of maybe some development of, of Jimmy and Kim's relationship. So we start out uh, uh, late at night, and Jimmy and Mike are, are uh, at the courthouse. And Mike's been getting voicemails from the detective who uh, he stole the notebook from. And uh, he called Jimmy to come down there with him. And uh, uh, when the detectives get there, Jimmy just uh, uh, pretends that he just found the notebook in the parking lot, which uh, I thought was a clever, clever way out of that. Yeah, that seems like the kind of thing that the cops don't believe, and he knows they don't believe, but they can't say it's not true. Right, there's no proof of anything, because you can't have a camera in the interview room, and there's no probably, you know, no, no camera in the in the parking lot. It was kind of cool to see him kind of shush Mike before Sanders and Abbasi, the two cops from Philly, came up, because Jimmy knew that anything Mike might say out of anger or out of defensiveness would kind of mess up the simplicity of what he was trying to do. And we do kind of find out that Jimmy's trying to save his own neck, but I, I thought it was it was neat that in, in saving his own neck, he did a pretty effective job of, uh, of saving Mike's as well. Right, right. And then, then Abbasi, the young cop, leaves, and, and uh, uh, Mike kind of uh, sends Jimmy away so he can have a talk with with. Detective Sanders, and uh, that was cool because it it, it it sort of becomes apparent that Sanders is, uh, it's like he gets that Mike did it and sympathizes with him, and, and they talk about whether Stacy's going to talk, and it's kind of like a little conspiracy of, of good cops who think maybe a certain number of bad cops need to die, you know, <laughs> but uh, right. I mean, does, that just kind of makes them bad cops too, they're, they're, they're vigilante cops. What does Sanders say? He said that their old precinct was a sewer. Right. Which just makes you realize how disgusted they were, but I don't know if Sanders knows he's talking to a guy... Who was a bad cop most of that time. Right. I don't know if Sanders has has made the same compromises that our, our friend Mike has made, so we right. don't know if they share ground as much as they think they do. What I thought was most interesting about that exchange is that both of them uh, sort of express admiration and kind of a fondness for Abbasi. Yeah. Though he's a, a bit of a hothead, Sanders says there's there's some rocks you don't turn over, 
But Mike says, I like the kid. And I, I wondered about why that stuck with me. And I realized it was because it gave me the impression that maybe Mike saw a little bit of his son in Abbasi. Oh. That a, a, a straight-edged cop who's trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Mike knows this is a cop who's trying to do the right thing. And I think the right thing is a huge theme in this episode, we can go ahead and say. And one other thing from that, too, is I do think it's very interesting um, that Mike is essentially leaving his fate in Stacy's hands. He doesn't have any control over what she's going to say when they go to talk to her. Right. And as far as we know, he didn't, you know, beg her not to talk or something. He just said, you can decide for yourself and left it at that. Well, he says, can you live with it to her? And then the next thing right, we see is him right. saying to that, what does he say? He says, it's the least I owe her, basically, to give her some agency in deciding what to do about him. Yeah, which is wild. It's interesting because it's got the integrity that you kind of want Mike to have, that at this moment he's not, he's not, like you said, he's not begging and cajoling and trying to uh, move people around yeah. uh, and get them to do what he wants. He's accepting that there may be consequences and he's leaving it up to her. And it's like if she doesn't say anything to the cops, then I think there's sort of the understanding that they're okay. And in a weird way, that little bit of knowledge we got sort of sets us up. If we never see Stacy again, which I kind of hope we do, but if we never do, we now know kind of how he ended up in her life enough to be part of Kaylee's life, which is that she probably didn't say anything to the cop. You know, she she was willing to, right. which in a weird way is maybe a lesson to her in the kind of corruption he's talking about. You know, like... Right, right. Now she's a little bit corrupt. And it's also more guilt on his conscience, I guess, that he's tainted her in some way. So, I mean, it goes on and on. But leaving it up to her is the one way for Mike's decision in that, in that moment, to me, to have any meaning at all, that he's leaving it up to her. Because if he's saying, I left it up to her, but he gave her a script, then that that's meaningless. But the, saying, I left it up to her and meaning it. Right. Do you think that's pretty much the end of that plot line for Mike? I mean, it seems pretty settled, right? His past, we now know why he left Philly, and it doesn't seem like they're gunning for him anymore. Mm, I don't know. That doesn't seem subtle to me because Abbasi is still on his, you know, we know that Sanders is sympathetic to him now, uh, but Abbasi's not, and he seems madder than ever. So I think they're going to stick around and keep uh, keep nosing around. I felt like that scene with Sanders kind of reduced the effect of, of the ticking clock. Um, they could put that to bed, but I feel like they would do a little more with Abbasi of showing something that makes Abbasi say, like maybe to come to the same realization as Sanders to where he says, all right, let's leave it alone and go home. Uh, what if there's an ugly parallel? What if uh, uh, Abbasi gets killed somehow in the middle of some shenanigans and Mike feels responsible for another good uh, cop going down? Oh, <laughs> uh, no, that would be ugly. That would be sad. Maybe they're done for this season. You know, we've got three episodes left. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of similar to the Kettleman's, which we'll get to, which is it just feels like this episode left some plot lines in a resting place that, that they feel complete. Right after the courthouse in, in the uh, parking lot, uh, Mike says it's in Stacy's hands. Well, he says it's in it's in someone else's hands. And Jimmy's like, "Whose hands is it in?" Uh, you know, and please don't say Hamlin, Hamlin, and McGill. <laughs> that line reminded me of in Ferris Bueller at the end when Ferris Bueller's sister is in the police station and she's met Charlie Sheen and he's giving her advice and he says, "You know who you need to talk to," and she says, "If you say Ferris Bueller, you're going to lose a testicle." I think, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> But I feel like it's that thing of please, like you just—he doesn't want to hear anything about H H and M at this point. And now, daytime shot. Jimmy pulls up at Chuck's house, and uh, well, uh, before we get into this, it's so crazy the way it starts out with this. As he's pulling up, there's this shot of a mm -hmm. caterpillar in the foreground. It's like hanging from a you know a thread and building a chrysalis or something. And it was well, it was 
it was so it's really <laughs> I don't mean to get all into this, but I can't help it. It was so weird that because I was like, what is that? I had to like rewind my DVR and get down in front of the TV and really look at it to figure out what it was. Uh, and it's all these leaves and a caterpillar is either working on it or eating it or whatever. And I thought, OK, I guess, you know, that could be very symbolic of, of, of Chuck maybe you know, emerging from his house or whatever, like a, like a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. And, and, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't really put it past this show to, to set that up on purpose. Um, but you know, how much trouble would that be? And I mean, you go to the caterpillar store and then you, you train the caterpillar to start working when you call action or, you know, what, what do they do? So I kind of feel like more than likely they were, they were setting up the shot and they saw this caterpillar in the, in the real, yard of the house there and they just they just you know position the camera so they could get in the shot and make it look cool or are we thinking the general theme of transformation that we've we've expressed as an obsession of vince gilligan's is that maybe that you're to think of that as being part of that Uh, but i mean either way it feels kind of high-minded if it's in there for that reason but heck why why not you know it's a cool visual so then uh uh, jimmy comes in and and finds chuck uh, standing outside and counting to 120 uh because uh, Chuck thinks maybe he can build up a tolerance to, you know, the electromagnetic waves or whatever it is, uh, which is cool. I mean, it gives you some hope for Chuck, and uh, and Jimmy says he's proud of him. So, you know, that was all really sweet, I thought. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, and I was trying, I was having a hard time telling exactly what Jimmy was thinking when Chuck was talking about his kind of exposure therapy or whatever you would call that. Yeah. He said it's like taking a small amounts of poison to build up an immunity. And then Jimmy says, is that a real thing? Because it definitely does not sound like a real thing. And then Chuck says, it's a real thing. Right, right. There was an expression on Jimmy's face, almost like he was doubtful of Chuck's ability to, to break out of this condition, even though what Jimmy does next in the scene indicates that he's actually sort of throwing Chuck a lifeline, trying to trying to give Chuck something to be useful with, which is, you know, leaving his files over there and sort of pretending he doesn't know which, uh, which whether to use a 413 or a 513 for filing these wills. And, and you know, you can see when he goes outside right. and he, he peeks back inside, he was, he was hoping Chuck would take the bait and would kind of step over and start looking through them. Right. Now that he's dressing up as Matlock, we can just officially say he's Andy Griffithing Chuck in this sense. He's being positive and supportive. <laughs> yeah. Doing a little trick on him. The same way that Andy Griffith would, would, would trick Barney Fife into doing what was best for everybody. And also, I thought it was interesting to see just Chuck outside and trying that. That uh, It makes you realize that this show is not trying to create these static conditions for these characters. It's nice for now to feel like, oh, he's trying and, and maybe it's working. What do you think the result on his health is going to be of all that bacon that he seems to be eating? Oh, that's all right. That's that's secondary. We can't worry about We can't have plots that worry about his you know, his heart health. So you're saying season one is uh, uh, electromagnetic hypersensitivity. Season two, cholesterol. Exactly. He gets over that. And then in season two, we're on to cholesterol. Then he goes on a big diet. Season three, it's into some kind of a a restless leg syndrome plot. I don't know. If if they get around to GERD, (laughs) you will know that the show has had a long and rich life. But I wanted to say about the, about the, the tricky plan when, when Jimmy brings in all the files and leaves them there, and I like that you're rather confident that he's sort of helping Chuck by letting him look at something from the outside world, and that's going to encourage him to feel useful and stuff. But I wondered if he's just being manipulative. Maybe his plan is to sort of just get Chuck to do his work for him. You know, he's going he's gonna to leave all this half-finished work here, 
and come back and find it done, and it's going to be less work for Jimmy. Can't it be both? It could be both, and it also could be a way of sort of turning Chuck into his his partner, you know, by saying, oh, Chuck, <laughs> you, you like to, uh, messing with all that? Okay, well, you're an official partner now. Um, so then, yes, Jimmy brings Kim to this uh, nice building that he's thinking about leasing an office in, and uh, uh, he shows her around the place, and he... he, he he mentions he's going to get a Coco Bolo desk because he likes to say mm-hmm. Coco Bolo. And uh, for anybody wondering, I looked it up, and that is a certain type of wood. It's a tropical hardwood of the tree Dalbergia retusa from Central America. <laughs> <clears throat> now, did you look it up too, or do you just know that? I just put it into Wikipedia as we were talking about this scene. So I was hoping that was off the top of your head. And then he basically tries to steal Kim from Hamlin. Uh, he shows her this beautiful corner office. But uh, she doesn't go for it, and she seems like she's kind of indebted to them, uh, you know. But maybe I don't know. She also just would not go for it anyway. But um, that was that was kind of sad the way they they ended that scene on him just standing there alone, you know. Well, I mean, it makes you realize that he's dreaming big, and then yeah, when he kind of offers her the corner office. The way that she rejects that offer is very much like rejecting an, a date or something like that. Like she she realizes she realizes what he's doing. You're right about the f- feeling like it, like getting out of a date because she just kind of wiggles out of it and then pretends it wasn't much of a thing by being like, "I'm going to look at the kitchen," you know. Uh, and he, he's just standing there. It's that whole thing of, I, "I oh, this is great. You could make someone very happy with this offer." You know what I mean? But not me. Right. We didn't just have a big moment. I'm just going to gloss over that. And then we get to see her working, which is kind of neat. She's uh, counseling the, the Kettlemans, and uh, they can plead guilty and, and give back the $1.6 million, and, and Craig will still probably have to do 16 months. Uh, or they can plead not guilty and go to trial, and he'll almost definitely get 30 years, uh, which would seem to be a very easy choice, uh, except that Betsy is a nut, and uh, yeah. uh, she just keeps insisting they're innocent, and... Uh, I mean, the way I saw it, she basically, she'd rather have her husband in jail for 30 years while she keeps the money, you know, or that's, I mean, that's how it felt to me. Well, she's delusional and she's, she's trying to manipulate everybody. And when things don't go her way, she kind of shoves off. It's hard to get a beat on what Craig really wants or what Craig would really do. Yeah. Kim offers them a deal and, and Betsy, when she rejects the deal, she says a deal, uh, I hate that terminology. A deal is what they gave OJ. (laughs) Right. Why does she think that they're not guilty? I mean, she almost believes her own story that they're not guilty even though she knows yeah. they have 1.6 million dollars it's an interesting evolution from where they started off seeming rather naive and clueless mm-hmm. and then they seemed a little bit more manipulative and devious and then they seemed like almost like a little bit more kind of evil and hard-edged and now we see that there really was nothing behind that that they had a plan that was about as far as let's get this money and that Craig was not, you know, we find out Craig was not clever about the way he covered for it writing writing bogus checks for expenses to himself yeah and up to now, we've gotten indications that she's the the strong one in the relationship, and you kind of feel that way. But really here, through this whole scene and and walking out, you feel like, okay, she he, he's he's fairly, he's pretty darn henpecked. She's the really strong-headed one in the relationship, and he's just going along. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at this point if we found out that the embezzling was her idea and she put it up to, put him up to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway... Uh, they fire Kim and they leave. <laughs> and, and Howard's uh, Howard's trying to keep and, them and following them out. And she says, "Please stop following us." You know, I mean, again, right. just it's clearly awful. 
disconnected from from planet Earth. And of course, Howard's furious, and we can see that now uh, Kim, who was saying before she was on a two-year track to be a partner, is now uh, you know not looking at that probably because Howard is vindictive and petty and, and is finally showing his like in this episode we finally see a little bit of, of prick Howard yeah yeah we've always suspected that he was a nemesis to to Jimmy but we we didn't know what we didn't like about him outside of the fact that he was just kind of full of himself but clearly now we see he's kind of vindictive and petty and he really doesn't have Kim's back at all yeah you can kind of guess there that she's going to be in hot water to see the Kettleman's and know that they're crazy you would think if Howard had any compassion for Kim he would be saying geez some clients you don't need right instead of acting like why didn't you keep these wonderful people you know <laughs> exactly yeah yeah uh, so then we go to Jimmy uh, calling bingo games uh, for the oldsters and uh, hence the episode title bingo Mm-hmm. And uh, he gets some good jokes in there, and then he gets a, a call from the Kettleman's. You can't just say he got some great jokes in there. You gotta, you gotta give a tip of the hat to um, Lucky B Six, just like the vitamin, <laughs> which you should be taking. Right, keep things moving in that old GI tract. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he's got the um, crazy old uh, Bob Barker long microphone. Right, which is, you know, I don't even know where you find one of those. I love answering the phone in the fake receptionist voice, which is which is a I think an important thing to note that he does it in this scene where it's kind of fun. Yes. And then later when he does the fake receptionist voice, it's 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 heartbreaking. Yeah. They're taking their time arriving at the at the Saul that we know. And you can see the difference between when he shows up at the police station in his dark suit and when he's at the at the old folks home with the the light suit. He's got a little bit more of a swoop in his hair. I mean, again, Jimmy is always always thinking of how to maximize his appeal to who he's going for. They really are settling him into this elder law thing and uh, for a good few episodes, which I thought was just going to be an episode and a half or something, but it feels like they're, they're really acting like, oh, he's doing great in that and he's staying in it for a while. And uh, mm-hmm. that makes me wonder if there's going to be a specific incident that, that gets him out of it. You know, if they're going to have some some kind of certain scandal or something that makes him say, okay, that's not my track anymore. Now I have to, I have to be a criminal lawyer as opposed to a criminal lawyer. Uh, and Jimmy goes to meet with the Kettleman's in a diner. And Betsy Kettleman is such a bullshit artist. She says, given your passion and your can-do attitude, we've decided you're the lawyer for us. Yeah. <laughs> Which, obviously, she doesn't believe. But uh, for, uh, for some reason, I guess they think he's the only other lawyer. He calls Kim and basically says, you know, uh, I'm meeting with the Kettleman's. And she says, you got to send him back to me. Um, but before we go back to that, I want to mention that here's a movie reference or television reference of the week. He says, picture the 25th hour starring Ned and Maude Flanders. Oh, right. I glossed right over that. I don't know anything about the 25th hour. Well, the 25th hour is two things. There's a movie called 25th Hour which is a, a movie from 2002 that would have been brand new at this point by Spike Lee, mm-hmm. which is about a guy who's... It's about the last day of a man's life before he goes into prison. Oh, yeah. But it doesn't really have a, ma- a man and woman together. There's another movie from 1967 called The 25th Hour, and it's much more of a two-hander with Anthony Quinn and Verna Lisi. Hmm. Given his frame of reference, yeah. a, a 1967 film with Anthony Quinn seems more up his alley right. than a Spike Lee movie that that I don't know at this point in the story. We don't know where where we are in 2002. I don't even know if the movie's actually come out yet. Right. Um, and then by the end of the scene, Betsy tries to just kind of force Jimmy to work for because he doesn't want to work for him. He's trying to send him back, and she's she's like trying to strong arm him. She you know she says somebody's going to come looking for the thirty thousand dollars that we gave you. And so, you you know, you got to do this for us. And even with Jimmy 
she continually pretends not to have the money or that there's no money. Right. And he's like, we've had it. And I love, he says, can we all three parachute down from cloud cuckoo land? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he has to outsmart her. She's not going to listen to reason. Right. And they've, and they've set up one of those positions now that he, you know, he's stuck in a position where the viewer thinks, well, I, you know, I have no idea how in the world he's going to get out of this. And, uh, uh, but as, you know, as Breaking Bad and, and this show so often do, they come up with some crazy thing that you couldn't think of. So, uh, but before we get to that, he goes to, uh, to HHM to get the Kettleman files. And he, he talks to Howard about Kim's office being moved. And he says, uh, you sent her to the cornfield. Which yeah, is which a, is another pop culture yeah, reference. Yes, a good Twilight Zone reference, um, of course. And for, if anybody doesn't know that, they need to watch that that old episode of the original Twilight Zone. Well, at, at the, and that's one of the ones they redid in the Twilight Zone movie in the in the eighties. They did the version with the rubber puppets and everything, which is also very cool in my memory. But the classic is the is the sixties Billy Moomy episode. And then he's smoking with Kim again, like in the, uh, in, you know, in the same parking deck, just like in the, uh, was that episode one? Well, he has to wheel out all those files. So he's got like a, a dolly with all the, the Kettleman files on it that he has to carry himself because Howard's not going to help. Right. And I, I thought it was kind of noteworthy that Jimmy does not kick the ash can at this point. Um, <laughs> but but Kim might be in, in a kind of kicking the ash can kind of mood in this scene because she's she's been sort of humiliated at the firm. And she knows Jimmy is doing what he can, but... She says even she's not being fair to him to expect him to be able to control what the Kettlemans do and whatnot. But <clears throat> right. But still, in that scene, you see that he's 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 thinking about her and he's thinking about what he can do to help her. Yeah. Well, Annie's trying to figure out how in the world can I get the Kettlemans off if that's their demand that there's zero jail time, uh, and so he's talking to her about that, and it seems just impossible. Uh, and then late at night in his office, he's you know going through the law books and trying to figure something out and then he he seems to hit on an idea and uh and he climbs up in the ceiling and gets some money down and then we go into right and and looking back on that moment it, it's a it seems it's another little like genius moment for him really if he really thought of what he thought of uh, you know which it seems like he did right like oh i can use this money to make the kettlemans do this this and this like there's something so brilliant about that. that it, it once again has a lot to do with sort of being able to predict what people might do. But we don't know yet. And what we see next is Mike kind of, I guess, either maybe, I don't know who concocted this plan, but it seems like it's more of Mike's trickery. Right. Uh, and his little, his, you know, his ability to sort of get in and out of a situation along with Jimmy's kind of mission of this is what we need to do. Right, right. I'm going to say that Jimmy, you know, called Mike and said, is there some way you can steal... Uh, the money from them and Mike said yes and then he then we go into this see you know that would be the off-camera scene and then we, uh, we well Jimmy the thing is Jimmy had to think of the decoy because t him taking his own money down from the ceiling indicates that he knew he needed that money as a decoy so he at least thought about making the Kettleman's think that their kids had gotten into the money yeah I guess so but then Mike probably was the guy who knew how to get into the house and how to track them. But shit, maybe Jimmy knew about the whatever, the stuff they sprayed on the money to make yeah. it. I mean, that was so enigmatic. That whole scene was so enigmatic. I know we talked about this, but I didn't know, is that some flammable thing? Is that, what is that? Is it Right, you don't know what it is while you're watching you know, it, and that's what makes it cool and groovy, and they've got this, I don't know what else. And he puts it in a remote control car too, which makes you think, okay, well, is he... Is he going to use that remote control car at some point? It was only later that it occurred to me, and as we said when we discussed it, like oh, he just put it in the car to make it look like it had something to do with the kids. It just incriminates the kids right. if, it's, if it's sitting on one of their toys or, or right. something. But. Right, right. 
But I mean, I think they they know by by choosing a remote control car and not a uh, like a, a a plastic pail or something like that. They knew that they were making us think, what's going on here? What's he going to do with that? What's Mike up to? You know, right. And the other thing I wanted to note there was using the Apple cores to indicate the passage of time. I thought that was so clever. Yeah. That uh, just, you know, Mike, Mike sits down and starts eating an apple, and then it cuts, and he's eating five apples, and he's also listening to a game on a little transistor radio, which I just thought made him seem so, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but just made him seem like such a, an old school guy that he was, yeah. you know, listening to, a, listening to a ball game and eating apples. Well, he's he an old school cop. He, he, he's an old school cop. He knows how to uh, do a stakeout so he can stay there for hours just watching and watching and watching because that's what he's used to, you know? Um, and uh, another thing worth mentioning is this: the really cool music cue in that scene was just really awesome, like, uh, you know, badass something's going on type music. It felt like something from a heist film or, or something. And it's a, a musician named Chris Joss, and the piece of music is tuned down. Yeah, it was definitely what I would call uh, groovy. You know, there's just, to yeah. me, that's like the only adjective that comes to me about that score is like, this is just groovy. It's just a 70s cool. It just makes you feel like... You're you're watching a, a black exploitation film or some just uh, really cool uh, version of that. So then the next day we find uh, uh, Jimmy with Mike and all the money, and and Jimmy adds his money into the bag, and uh, Mike's about to deliver it somewhere, and and he and that's when he says, "So we're square, right?" So mm-hmm. yeah, I guess basically Mike did this as a favor in return for the coffee favor. Is the way I was, well, or I or, for, so. or for coming down to the courthouse, the you know the night before, well, whatever, whatever it is, was. it's as though now we're square. It could even be like I thought we were square before, but now are we square? You know. Yeah. Um, the other thing I like about that was, uh, you know, Jimmy. You know, he's tempted looking at that money. He says, "Jesus, it gets bigger every time I look at it." Yeah, and he says, "Thanks for not going to the Bahamas or whatever." And then. You know, after the show was over later, I said to myself, well, why didn't Jimmy go to the Bahamas? Well, again, here's the thing. Here's a very crucial point. Saul Goodman would have. You know, Saul Goodman would not have been able to resist taking a taste or signing on as the Kettleman's lawyer and bleeding them for a while while he figured out how to weasel out of whatever the charges would be. Yeah, you would think. Mike, I even asked, what are you doing when Jimmy takes his own money? Because Jimmy now knows he needs to add to what the Kettleman's have to round it up which Jimmy spent some of that money on the billboard. So Jimmy's taking the money he has left from that 30000 I thought before it was 50000 for some reason, but it was 30000 uh-huh. as we found out in this episode. Jimmy tapped out some of his own savings, you know, yeah. well, clearly the money he was going to put towards leasing that office. Mike says, what are you doing? And Jimmy says, the right thing. Right. And he kind of puts air quotes on right. it. E- even, even when Jimmy's doing the right thing, he doesn't really want to believe that there's such a thing as the right thing, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, he, and, and he's going against his slipping Jimmy nature. Well, but it's also, he's also doing it to get himself out of the situation. He could have scrambled more to get more for himself out of that, but all he did was kind of clear himself. And it's clear to me, it's very, very clear to me that um, he did a lot of it for Kim too. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't just an ancillary benefit for him to do what he thought would work for her like he was he was still trying to act on that moment when kim said i, I really need you to send him back to H. right it all you know. can yeah he he fixes it all up to where they go back to him but uh, uh and so to do that he he goes to the kettleman's house uh and he lets on that the money is missing from their upstairs bathroom and they uh you know they have a big 
awesome freak out. <laughs> yeah, like B- Betsy Kettleman goes through the five stages of grief, you know, <laughs> in, 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 in one scene. Yeah, it's really intense. And at the end of the scene breaks down in tears when she realizes her, their best option is for Craig to take the fall for it. Because if she presses Jimmy about the bribe, which she seems to be doing, I mean, she, the way she starts calling it a bribe after calling it a retainer right. before... Um, and and now Jimmy's like, oh, so now we're calling it a bribe back again. A bribe. And he reminds her that that now she's she's involved, but right. but otherwise it's we can keep it to just Craig. And Craig sort of mans up in that moment and says to uh, to uh, Betsy, you know, like, no, for the children, you've got to stay out of this, you know. And he's going to go take his year and a half or whatever. Um, you know, Jimmy says something in that scene that seems very significant too. He says. Uh, the thing you folks need to know about me is I got nothing to lose. Christ, you should see my office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like in this scene, he's he's triumphant while he's also just squashing the dream that he had at the beginning of the episode. Who knows what the fallout from this will be? Yeah. It seemed like it tied a bow on a lot of things. It seemed like it sent the Kettlemans off to their fate, uh, or at least Craig Kettleman off to about a year and a half. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting that at the end, when they're when they're when he's turning them over to Kim, they're getting in the elevator. Kim looks at him and and said, mouths thank you, and Craig Kettleman is looking at him, and Betsy Kettleman is just looking down at the ground. She can't even look at Jimmy. You know, she's she's catatonic almost. Yeah, they're like two sad children that are being turned over to someone. She's having a much harder time dealing with the the crashing to earth, right, right. of their plan, which again just forces you to realize that de- that they were delusional, or at the very least, that she was like, you know, maybe like megalomaniacal or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I love how at the end of their scene in their house, how how ridiculous she was just break just crying over it like she was so entitled to this money like it was there and she threatens that you know that she would call the cops on jimmy for stealing it i mean she's just completely nuts and then she's totally bawling that she's lost all the money that they stole i see it less as like the entitlement to the money and more like oh gosh there are really going to be consequences and and this is where we are you know what i mean there's a there's almost like a you can't deny the reality of that as opposed to fighting it, continuing to fight it. Yeah. Um, what I find interesting is that, I don't know if it's just the the stakes of this show versus the, sh- the stakes of a show like Breaking Bad, but I find it interesting how seldom someone is a physical threat to somebody. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, we've seen, we've seen Mike shoot a few people, and we've seen what happened in the desert in the first couple of episodes, but at no point did it seem like the Kettleman's considered, like, knocking Jimmy out and, and killing him. And, you know what I right. mean? Like, at no point did it go that far. Right. Um, which I wonder if that's just meaning we're going to have moments of that punctuate that, or if it's just going to be some criminals or not the, the bloodthirsty kind, you know? Exactly. But even out in the woods, I feared for Jimmy when he was just kind of confronting the Kettleman's right. and when he went into their house and confronted them. I, I, again, I just want to stress what I think is kind of a ballsy thing that he goes in there. He knows, he, he he's, he's telling them the best advice they could get, which is take this deal. Um, you know, even for all their, their kind of venality, He's still giving them the best advice that he could. Right. And he's still being a pretty good lawyer to them. It's just, yeah, now he's making and them do the thing that is the best advice. <laughs> I still, I feel like he silenced them only in as much as he, he count, the money's accounted for, you know. Right. He's, he can say, no, that's not true. You've got all the money right there. But it doesn't mean that there's no complications to come, especially if Kim's to be their lawyer. We don't know if in future episodes there'll be more Kettleman action because they could be going to trial. Who knows? Could be. It does seem like their storyline is put to rest in the same way that I feel like Mike's storyline. Was, was somewhat put to rest, at least for now. Like, I, I would expect the next episode maybe to pick up with some new some new adventures, but we don't know. You know, We don't know how that's going to go. I, I, that last scene in the law office that never was, though, to me was very... 
just took me through a little range of emotions. You know, I, I think we have the visual of what Saul Goodman's office turns out to be in our mind, and we kind of suspect or know that Jimmy McGill is never destined to have that nice, nice view. Right. You know, and the and the big uh, big professional looking office. But like, so it made to me it made that moment especially kind of tragic on the second viewing because I thought more about the implications of everything. Um, you know, and, and the fact that Jimmy, you know, appears to have a little bit of an anger problem. Um, you know, he didn't kick the ash can in front of us in this episode, but he definitely has at it at that door. Yeah. But I thought it was great that he, you know, he breaks down. We see that beautiful view and we kind of know he's looking at it and knowing it's not, it's not Jimmy's view. You know, this is not going to be his view of the world. Um, and then the phone rings and he, he takes a second, but then he sucks it up. And he says, law offices of James McGill, how may I direct your call? You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and I love him. And in that moment, I just think, okay, well, he did the right thing. He kind of helped out his his friend. If he keeps getting kicked around for trying to do the right thing, isn't it easier to imagine why he might say, screw this? Yeah, definitely. The more things that happen like this, you could sort of pile them up and say it's a, a, a thousand cuts or something. But... What else? Do you have any, uh, you know, that that covers the episode. Do you have any broad-sweeping commentary about uh, uh, life and love and everything that you want to add? No, I feel like we, we made a lot of broad-sweeping commentary as we went along. So the only things, I have a couple of little bits of business before we before we wrap it up, but I don't have anything else about the episode. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> Good job. I like that. Um, if you're listening and you're not following us on Twitter, at Saul underscore searching, or if you're not writing a set Saul searching at gmail.com, you're really missing out because if you did, we would we would read your comments on the show and we would respond to them the way we're about to respond to this email from our mutual friend Chris, Mark Martin. Yes, Mark Martin, the brilliant cartoonist. Cartoonist extraordinaire Mark Martin, who wrote to us in in response, I believe, to when we supposed that perhaps uh, Better Call Saul would not be that satisfying of a show to someone who was was not familiar with the characters from Breaking Bad, but that it might. We were kind of speculating we didn't know. If, if you could really enjoy Better Call Saul without having watched Breaking Bad. And Mark writes, Hi guys, Mark Martin here. Just wanted to drop a line and tell you that I am that guy, the only person on Earth who has never watched Breaking Bad. I can tell you that that guy is enjoying Better Call Saul. You may have wondered about that. I'm surely missing some nuanced references, but even to me, Saul is TV worth watching. And then he parenthetically adds, I'll probably watch Breaking Bad someday. I just have not invested the time yet, so... So yeah, I would just say first off, Mark, definitely watch Breaking Bad. It's great. Right, and it's mainly just the characters who you know feeling like, oh, I already know who Mike is, I already know who Tuco is, uh, that, right. that you would be missing out on. But they they set them up all over again and better in some ways, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just not required that you see Breaking Bad. But that'll be a neat uh, uh, experiment for for uh, Mark if he ever gets around to watching Breaking Bad after watching Better Call Saul. Uh, just be a flip-flopped experience and it'll just be the the same but different i wonder if the show can maintain the character of jimmy mcgill as they evolve him into saul goodman without it seeming like oh poor jimmy he's gone he's dead like i still think there's 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 a chance well he can be like a darth vader he gets into a dark place but you know that somewhere deep inside is a good man and yeah uh and then they redeem him in the end yeah all they need is mark hamill to play his son <laughs> right we've got a great ninth season yeah <clears throat> Well, uh, I guess we're we're done with this episode. I got nothing else, and it seems to me like uh, it was a, a pretty darn hot talk. I'm going to see your hot talk, Chris, uh -huh. and raise you one hot talk. Hot talk.